So in chapter 10 of the book of Acts, you, you have uh, one of these stories. It seems like every time I come to a place in Acts, it's like it's pivotal, it's important. There's movement, something's happening. But this is it because, and I actually preached from this passage, I think back in the fall, but uh, it's part of it anyways. Peter is going to go into the home of a Gentile named Cornelius and lead him to faith. And this, is, this, this, is, this is a big movement. Now remember, Acts 1-8. Whenever you look at the book of Acts, you always got to go back to Acts 1-8. It sets the framework for everything. And Jesus said, the power of the Holy Spirit will come upon you. You'll be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and then Judea, Samaria, and then to the rest of the world. So by now, several years have probably gone on, and they've got Jerusalem. They're there. They've gone to Judea and Samaria. In fact, Peter went to Samaria to, to you know, verify salvation that had gone to that place. We had seen already Gentiles come to faith, and, and Philip did that. Um, and let someone. Paul has now been saved, and Paul will soon just begin an unbelievable expansion of the church through going to Gentiles, uh, some of which we kind of saw some of that last Sunday. And we know that people went out and shared the gospel in different places. We know by now probably the gospel's gotten to Rome somehow and other places, but the, the, the systematic work, the, the intentional work, and what, what Luke does is... You know, he's not gonna, he doesn't try to document everything that ever happened. You can't do that. But there's a certain authority with Peter, a certain authenticity. It is to Peter that Jesus said, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. That was to all the apostles. I get it. But he was representing them. And whatever you shall have loosened on earth shall be loosened. Whatever you have in heaven, whatever you abound on earth shall be bound in heaven. I mean, he's saying, you, I'm giving you guys the message of the gospel, all of you. And, and so... The, the, the apostles kind of verify what happens and, and give the authenticity to whatever happens. And it's really important. And so you're going to have Peter doing this event. Now, what, what I think is important in the story we're going to see is to understand, sometimes we don't get, we don't get all the, the backstory. We, just, we see what's in the Bible, and we take it from there, and, and all that goes around with it, we don't always see it. But Peter, God has been over a period of time, the Holy Spirit working in Peter to prepare him for what he's about to see. And for what he's about to experience. It, these things just don't happen like, you know, unexpectedly. And the, 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 we see from chapter 8, Gentiles coming to faith. All right, you know, this is starting to happen more and more. Um, we start to see more and more God working and, and things beginning to take place. Paul is now saved. Luke's unfolding this story. All right, you got Paul saved now. You know, there's some more stuff coming. And, and, and he leaves Paul. He's going to get back to Paul to go back to Peter. Now, I've said, I, whenever I do a, a, big, a big look at Acts, I, I remind you, it centers on two people, on Peter and Paul. That's, it all centers around those guys. And I know it centers around the Holy Spirit. I get that. And I know every book in the Bible centers around Jesus. So that's the perfect Sunday school answer. So if that's what you're thinking, you're correct. And we're all pleased with you. But sometimes you just have to you know, understand with all the spirituality in place. We got it. This book centers around the Holy Spirit working through two guys to get the message of Jesus out. It's Peter and Paul. Are there other people in play? Absolutely. Barnabas, Silas, we've seen, we've seen so far. Uh, Stephen and, and Philip, they all play a part. James, the brother of Jesus. These are the two main guys. And we got just a little bit more of Peter until we're going to get a lot of Paul. But the transition to the Gentiles, as Luke lays it out, goes from Peter's encounter with Cornelius until when Paul goes on these journeys he's going to take. 
So this becomes a really important part of the whole gospel message, to what we see what happens and the fluidity of this. It is also a reminder to us that there is no group of people that we have the right to withhold the gospel from. There is no group of people that you and I can say, I'm not sharing the gospel with that group of people. We don't get there right. If ever there was a group that, you know, Jews despise Gentiles and they didn't get the right, you're fixing to see this in this passage. So it's important to understand this. Verse 10 says, now verse 9 ends with Simon Peter going to the house of a guy named Simon who was a tanner. He worked with leather, which means he worked with dead animals, which means he was ceremonially unclean. So Peter's in the home of a, of a Jewish man who's unclean all the time. It kind of sets that up. There was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort. A centurion is the equivalent kind of a captain. He oversaw about 100 guys. A cohort would have been six groups of 100 guys. You know, six, and, a, and a legion would have been you know, about 6,000 or so of them. So I mean, it was part of the group. But centurions were the backbone of the Roman army. They were... <sighs> Oftentimes in, in, in that day and age, wealth and privilege could buy you certain positions. If you were a father, you know, and you, and you were wealthy and you had numerous sons, your eldest son would inherit a lot of the wealth, run the business. What are you going to do with the other sons? You would, you, would, you would pay money for them to go get a commission in the army. They could be a general or whatever they could be in the Roman army. They were useless, you know. And so a guy like a centurion may answer to them, but the centurion ran the thing. The average rank and file soldiers sometimes can be brutal and sometimes can be crude. The centurion was normally educated at least a little bit. He had to be a leader. He had to be refined. He had to know when to use force and when not to use force. They didn't, they didn't always just want to use force and everything. They, they had to have a degree of wisdom. So these guys were, were important. And in the New Testament, every time we encounter a centurion, it is a positive experience. Jesus encounters one. It's positive. The centurion at the cross, positive. Here's another example of positive. And so, you know, it's just why it works out that way, why the New Testament writers present them that way, I don't know. But it's a positive experience. So here is this guy. He was, in verse 2, a devout man, one who feared God with all his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. So he was a Gentile who could be classified, in essence, as one who feared God or a God-fearer. Gentiles could never be fully Jewish, but if they would, they would convert to the Jewish faith, they could be circumcised. You know, that was a big deal. They, they were almost that way. But a lot of them, what would happen, and this appears to be him, they wouldn't go through circumcision. They wouldn't be fully Jewish because they didn't for whatever reason. But what they would do is they would worship the God of the Jews. They would become monotheistic. They would leave behind paganism and polytheism. They would then not only worship the one true God, they would, to the best of their ability, try to keep the laws and regulations. In other words, they would follow the Jewish faith as best they could, but they didn't consider it necessarily the Jewish faith. They would consider it faith in God. And to the best of their ability, they were committed to Yahweh, the God of the Jews. We are told that this guy gave money for the, to help the synagogue in whatever capacity. He would have had a degree of wealth. Oftentimes, centurions, 
You know, when, when you went to war, you plundered sometimes. And if he had spent some time in war, undoubtedly part of his reward and part of his payment, not only was his salary, but would have been what plunder. He could have accumulated wealth. And he prayed continually. And notice he, he, he honored the times of prayer. This guy was in every way devout. About the ninth hour of the day, about three o'clock in the afternoon, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius. And fixing his gaze on him, that is the angel, and being much alarmed, he says, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now understand this. He saw an angel and he calls the angel Lord. It's an interesting thing. It's clearly an angel. Luke says he clearly saw an angel. He's not making, this is not a post-resurrection appearance of Jesus like Paul had. That's what you saw in chapter 9. Luke's saying this isn't it. It was a vision of an angel who refers to his Lord. So understand, and I've said this before, and and you especially see it in the Old Testament. You're going to see it a little bit more in a minute. Don't get caught up in when, like you see in Abraham in, in, in Genesis 18 and so, one minute there, there's some men there, and the next minute it's an angel of the Lord, and the next minute he's talking to Yahweh. And, and we try to make all these distinctions and get caught up in all this. They didn't worry about that. Whatever it is, it is the Lord working through whatever he's working through and whoever he works through. And oftentimes they recognize it as the Lord working. So whatever vision he saw, it could be he's calling the angel Lord out of polite respect. Or it could be he's recognizing the Lord working through the angel and this vision, this dream. It really doesn't matter. And it doesn't change our understanding of anything. And sometimes we we need to recognize some things just don't matter. Don't get too caught up in the details. Now, if you want to, that's fine. And you can do a lot of research and try to spend a lot of time figuring that out. And at the end of the day, it doesn't change one single thing about your spiritual life. Nothing in your spiritual life is going to change. Now, that's fine to go do that. I'm not saying don't do it. I'm just saying nothing in your life is going to change. And fixing his gaze on him, I said, what is it, Lord? In verse 5 says, now dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He's got to make that distinction. He is staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. And when the angel who was speaking to him had left, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who were his personal attendants. And he, sent them, and he explained everything and said, go to Joppa. So he's got two servants and, another, and one of his soldiers. On the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop. It was about the sixth hour to pray. It was about noon. Interesting enough, noon was not a normal hour set aside for prayer for the Jews, so Peter was going up there on his own. Probably, for whatever reason, to seek leadership and guidance from the Lord. But he became hungry and was desiring to eat. And while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. So he's up there. He's, eat, he's, he's, he's waiting for the new meal they're going to feed him. Um, and as he's, they're doing that, he falls into a trance. He was not hypnotized. It, it wasn't, you know, some people say it was, he was so hungry, he was just, you know, lost it and was in a trance. Probably best to just understand that in this time of prayer, he was spiritually prepared to receive what God had for him. 
He saw the sky open up and an object like a great sheep coming down and lowered by four corners to the ground. Some think that he would have been under an awning. And as he was praying, the awning took the form of a sheep, of the sheet. Some, because there were ships out there, it could have been in sail. Where again, it doesn't matter. And here's what happened. There were all on it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy, unclean. So he heard a voice. doesn't say what the voice was. He calls the voice Lord. So he understood it to come from Jesus. He would, he, to him, it would have been the voice of the Lord. This is not a post-resurrection appearance of Christ. This does not mean that audibly, you know, Jesus was there. It just means he understand the Lord was speaking to him. Now, what's important about this is Peter was at about you. And what was in, on the sheet were many of the animals they were forbidden to eat. And if you go back to the law, to the Old Testament, you see the things they were not allowed to eat, all types of things. You know, they always joke about the fact that they couldn't have, you know, they couldn't have pork and they couldn't have shrimp and they couldn't have catfish and all the things that, you know, people from the South and Texas love to eat a lot of. But the point of it is, there were certain things that were just unclean for the Jews. And in the rationale for all that, it really doesn't matter. And one of the problems they had with Gentiles is Gentiles ate all these things. And so one of the things that Jews could not do was associate with Gentiles because Gentiles were always unclean because they ate food like this. It's also possible that they were concerned they wouldn't eat with Gentiles, not only because of they would serve them food like this, but for all the other reasons that Gentiles were unclean from their lifestyle and other things. So these foods represented the uncleanliness to them of Gentiles. And this is why Jews didn't ever go into the homes of Gentiles. It made them unclean. It was not allowed. Peter was that way. So when he was told to eat it, eat of all this, he says, by no means, that's emphatic. He says, I've never eaten anything unholy and unclean. I've never eaten anything. Now, unholy doesn't mean righteous or unrighteous, but it has to do with set apart. I've never eaten anything that was common. The holiness of God is that he is complete and whole, lacking in nothing. It translates into a righteousness. But the concept of holiness is in opposition to commonality, or what we would call being profane or common. And that's what makes being holy important. It is the lack of being just common what is normal for us as sinners. And so he says, I, I, I don't participate in any of that. And then you have the next verse. And Peter says that, and then a voice came to him a second time and said, but God is cleansed, no longer consider unholy. It happened three times. The object was taken away. And so in other words, what I have cleaned, don't consider unholy. Now, obviously this does apply to the food. I know people, I remember in Bridgeport, where I passed it there, there was a guy who obeyed all the Jewish ceremonial stuff and never ate any of the things that were forbidden. And he was one of those that said that the law says you can't have it, you can't have it. And I'm like, right here says it's okay. You're wrong. Pick up a New Testament, read it, and quit being such an arrogant jerk. I may not have worded it quite that way. But the end of, my, end of when we were through and we prayed, I prayed for his salvation. I never saw him again. He was really ticked at me. And that rightly so, because I thought he was an arrogant jerk, and I was tired of messing with him. So I thought he needed to be saved, and either he would get saved or he would leave me alone. 
I don't know if the first happened, the second did. And the point I was just making is, you know, get over yourself. Read the New Testament. Read what God says. This is Peter. Peter's as big a guy as there is. I mean, this is Peter. And they're telling Peter, it's okay. You can have this food. That's why we don't celebrate that stuff. That's why we don't, we don't follow those. If you don't want to eat them, I don't care. But don't, don't, don't blame God for you, not, for you not eating that stuff and following the ceremony alone. So that's what's in the law because you clearly don't understand Scripture. And I don't mind saying that. I don't mind being, if it's harsh, so be it. Because if you don't understand that, you probably don't understand a lot of things. This is freedom. He's given Peter the freedom to enjoy. God says, what I say is clean. Don't say it's not clean. If I say it's holy, don't you say it's not holy. And Peter understood it in other ways we'll see in a minute. If this no longer applied to the, to the dietary laws, it no longer applied to people. He was no longer to consider people unclean. And that is a critical component of the movement you see in the book of Acts. And it is a message to us. We don't have any business considering anyone unworthy to come to God. Now, I know there are places where it says don't cast, you know, pearls before swine and, and you know, what is sacred to dogs. And there, there are times that, you know, I've come across people who are so obstinate and so, you know, antagonistic for Christ. I say, okay, and I walk away. But I don't think they don't, I don't think they're unworthy. I don't think they're unclean. I think they're rebellious. I don't think that they shouldn't hear the gospel. I just think that they're so hard to it, it doesn't do any good to share it. Sometimes I pray that at some point they'll come to a place of faith. There's a person I pray for on a regular basis. I'm concerned about their salvation. They've rejected. And there's a certain hardness that comes not so much from them, but the person that they're married to. And I'm like, Lord, you know, I don't know how to work through this process, but here's what I know. Give me a day at some day when I can share Jesus with this person. Figure out a time, God, when that will work. I know it's not right now. And what I'm about to say sounds kind of harsh, maybe. But sometimes life is harsh. My God, maybe what needs to happen is that person's spouse needs to pass. So that hard, harsh, negative influence won't be there. Maybe then, without that interference, they might come to Jesus. I think like that sometimes because, listen, people I know and care about, I want them to come to Jesus. Some of them are not going to come right now. They're, they're, they've hardened. And, and I'm like, how can I get them softer? I can't. How God does that. And I'm looking for ways to get them the gospel because none of us are worthy of the gospel. That's going to be in my message Sunday. But there is no one who is more unworthy than someone else. It's not like I'm unworthy, but man, that group over there is more unworthy than me. No, they're not. There's no one, to understand this, there's no one more unworthy than you of being saved. We're all equally unworthy. So how do, how do I work through that process? 
of helping people come to faith. Because this is not what really matters. Think of us as a church. How many of you have grown up in churches where at some point in your life, you're not a part of a church like that now. If you're here, you were part of a church that certain people were unworthy of, enough that you didn't need to share the gospel because they didn't deserve it. it happens. Well, it happens all the time. It still happens. It happens within Christianity. It happens in Baptist churches all the time. Maybe that's not official, but kind of in the back of their mind, they're thinking those people don't really deserve to hear the gospel. They're unclean. They're not like us. They're not sanctified. And we don't want them in our group. And I've heard this because we don't want them to corrupt our kids. <laughs> yeah, your kids are corrupt because you're their parents. And they have the seed of Adam. So I understand your theology and know they're already corrupted. I say that because it's serious business to think for one moment that someone doesn't deserve the gospel any more than you. Peter was greatly perplexed in his mind to what the vision he had seen might behold. And then the men who had sent by Cornelius, having asked directions for Simon's house, appeared at the gate. What a coincidence. And calling out, they were asking whether Simon, who was called Peter, was staying there. Probably Peter's on the roof. He hears him down there. And when Peter was reflecting on the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Now the Holy Spirit's working. So we've had angels, the Lord, vision, and the Holy Spirit. It's all working together. You know what I don't do? I don't try to figure it all out. <laughs> it's just, hey, that's what it says. I'm good. All right? this is, God's working. Get up, go downstairs, and accompany them without misgivings. Notice what he says. I have sent them myself. He's not saying, Peter, I'm sending you to them. He's saying, Peter, I've sent them to you. You ever wonder how many times God has sent people to you? We always talk about us being sent to them. You know, we go to Isaiah, Lord, here am I, send me. And, you know, and, and we have messages and things, so send I you. And we have been sent and called and all that stuff. And that's great. I believe it. I'm 100% I'm, I'm with it. How many times have people been sent to us? And we just flat missed it. How many times? Someone walked through the door of this church. They needed Jesus. And we missed them. That's tough. On more than one occasion, there have been people who have come here and they've got a hold of one of the somebody's staff guys, me or maybe some of y'all, and they've poured their heart out and you realize God sent them here. Doesn't always work out the way we hope. And sometimes after I've, you know, if I, for me, I like them to do them after one of the first three services because I got a fourth and I'll just give them to one of the other guys. You know, but if it's after the fourth, you know, I'm like, Lord, you know, I like to go home, but I guess we're going to be here a while, you know, kind of thing. I still try to find a way to get him to Joe because Joe loves to talk. If you just want someone to talk to, just come up and talk to Joe anytime. He'll just talk to you. He'll talk to you for hours. Me? You got about five minutes. God sends people our way. God, I sent him to you. How many times has God sent someone to you? And you didn't respond. That, 
that, that, that always scares me. Because if I'm not careful, I get busy. And sometimes, sometimes I don't want to act like, some, sometimes I just don't want to go somewhere and be the pastor for a few moments. I just want, I don't want to deal with people. I never want to deal with people, but sometimes I mean really don't want to deal with them. And, and I realize it's not, it has to do anything with being a pastor. It has to do with I'm a follower of Jesus, just like you are. And none of us get time away from being available for God to send people to us. We don't get vacation time or sick leave from God sending people our way. And how many of you pray, not that you, God will send you, how many of you pray that God will send someone to you? Man, that might change your prayer life just a little bit. Peter went down to the men and said, Behold, I am the one you're looking for. What is the reason which you have come? He still said this, hey, I'm a guy, what do you want? That's what he's saying. And they said this, Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews. They really build Cornelius up. They're buttering this guy up, Peter up. Was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house. And hear a message from you. God sent an angel to bring you to him. It's interesting. This is Peter now. Peter's like, I mean, he's like the head of all of Christianity. I mean, you know, not officially, but I mean, it's Peter. You know, you think about all the, the Christians like Peter. It's Peter. And, and this guy's saying, this Roman has sent us to bring you to him. Because the Lord, through an angel, did all this. And Peter, Peter gets it. He does. So he invited them in and gave them lodging. So you got these Jews, Gentiles, staying with these Jews, and Simon the Tanner's probably like, yeah, at this point it doesn't matter. And on the next day, he got up and went away with them. And some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied him. So he took some of the Jewish believers with him because Peter needed verification. Of what was about to happen. Peter understood something big's about to happen. He just got that moment. Did you ever get that moment? Something big's about to happen, Peter. Peter's like, man, something big's about to happen. And so Peter's going. He got some brothers going with him. And they're all, they're all they're going down that way. They take his trip. And the next day he, he enters Caesarea. And Cornelius was waiting for him and had gathered together his relatives and close friends. Cornelius just got his family, got his friends. Somehow he knew where they were. It reminds me in uh, the 16th chapter of, of uh, Romans when Paul helps that Roman uh, that guard come to faith, the jailer. And he just gets his whole family. Everybody come. Everybody come. Come here about what's going to happen. This is exciting things. An exciting time. We ought to, you know... And I'm not trying, and this is a little bit of a stretch compared to the story, and I'm not trying to over-spiritualize it, but it is a reminder we need to want people we care about to come to Jesus. And if you do nothing else, just bring them here. All right? Just bring them here. They'll, they'll hear about Jesus. They'll hear about Jesus Sunday. They'd hear about Jesus today. So I, I tell this all the time because, I mean, I grew up in a culture, and I've shared this before, where we were just hammered about you know, how many people I'm going to share the gospel with, and i got to have a testimony, and i got to be able to verbally do it. And I get it, and I get it, and I don't agree with it. I don't disagree with it. 
It's hard sometimes to share Jesus. You know, I know that. It's hard. It's hard for me sometimes with people. You may have difficult situations. If you do nothing else, we say this all the time. We talk about it in staff all the time. There's Mike, there's Joe, and some other guys. Michael, we say this all the time. If you do nothing else, just bring them here. They'll hear the gospel. That's it, it, if, if, you're, if the sole way you evangelize is just to bring people here, you're good. You're good. And the more you bring, the gooder you are. You know? If you do nothing else, just bring them here. Now, I realize there may be Sundays when specifically the gospel isn't preached, but those Sundays, God may speak to them some other way. And there may be Sundays when I'm not the guy preaching, and you may say, oh, no, David's not here. It's it's Brian or it's Joe. God can do amazing things even with those guys. (laughs) Maybe, just maybe, you don't know. Hey. I like the beard. I mean, ever since you got that doctorate, you're going to beard, salt and pepper. You look really good except for the New York Yankees jacket. But here's the thing. <laughs> Get people to Jesus as fast as you can. And if all you can do is bring them here, bring them here. All you can do is to get them to listen and watch one of the messages online. Get them to watch a message online. Let God do his thing. Your thing is to get people to Jesus. That's your thing. Now, if you can tell them and you can do all that, that's great. Verse 25, Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshipped him. That's never happened to me. I've always wondered what that was like. It'd be so cool. It happened to Paul. Because I want to say what Peter said in verse 26. Stand up. I too am just a man. I so want to be able to say that. And as he talked with him, he entered and found many people assembled. It's, it's all there, a lot. Now, this is one of those subtle, subtle things. Okay. Verse 25 says, he entered. That's all it says. A Jewish Christian entered the home of a Gentile. A Jew went into the home of a Gentile. This was forbidden. In that moment, things changed. Peter understood. It was the time to put away all the prejudice, all the animosity, all the reluctance. And it was time to fulfill Acts 1-8. To go to all the world, to all the people, to go to their home. In fellowship with them. And share Jesus. And in verse 28 he said, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with foreigner or to visit him. And yet God has shown me I should not call any man holy or unclean. That is why I came without even raising any objection when I was sent for. So I ask, why did you send for me? Why did you? Ask me to come into your life. People will invite you into their life. And you have the gospel of Jesus. What are you going to do when you enter in 
to their life. Well, we'll finish this up next week.